This week, we talk with Matthew and Daniel from Tocan about Footnote, a layer two protocol on Handshake for storing and synchronizing small amounts of authenticated data. We cover their design motivations for Footnote, basic components and functionality of the protocol, what kinds of use cases might make sense, and Kilcan's initial work on a decentralized social media platform, Nomad, which utilizes Footnote. We should give a quick intro to uh, to Kilcon and, and your history in the crypto space, just to provide a little context about yourselves. Oh yeah, sure. So Kilcon was founded uh, in like late 2016, early 2017. We have worked on a lot of different projects uh, in the public blockchain ecosystems. A lot of Ethereum work, so interface work in Ethereum uh, projects that you may have heard of include uh, early versions of MetaMask and Uniswap. I think we've we've also done a fair bit of like layer two scaling work and protocol work that Matt has been uh, really the um, champion of and and yeah I think I think what what we're about is generally like making public blockchains more usable really bringing them out into the mainstream trying trying to get mass adoption for uh, things like Web three and decentralized finance those are those are both um, very near and dear to our hearts so yeah I'm very excited about building out on top of Handshake right now but but uh generally about the space and how everything's going. Um, it's going to be an interesting couple of years. What I don't know, although I guess like that's a good topic for the podcast, is given that storage limit, what kinds of use cases make sense? I guess uh, lighter websites, for one, that would be nice. We should have those. As far as use cases go, I think I think one thing to highlight is that Footnote right now is um, could, could be considered in testnet phase. So even the like blob size limits are worth discussing. I think a kind of a good range might be like a megabyte to 16 megabytes. As far as use cases go, I, I think that there's there's something cool about how with a durably decentralized data layer, you have the potential for metadata or profile data of some kind. Basically having this sort of thin, fresh layer of like discoverable content or, or like uh, discoverable profile data could be quite quite interesting. and, and um, when considering applications like, like textual applications, like anything from comments on public media, any kind of long form text content down to Usenet type use cases or uh, mailing lists, I think could be quite interesting to explore with something like Footnote. Yeah, so right now the, the biggest thing that we're exploring Footnote for is, is social networking. I think at, at kind of a higher level, Footnote is most interesting when you add structure um, to the data that's stored within what we're calling each user's blob. So the blob is the allocation of storage that each user footnote gets. And the reason why that structure is interesting is that it lets you create these kind of Project Xanadu-esque links between data. So Sokol is a great example of this. You know, I write to my blob that I'm following somebody else, and then somebody else sees that, and that's how they establish the follower relationship between two people. As for like why this is possible on a network with constrained storage, um, the answer to that in my mind is for most social use cases, the amount of data that you actually need is relatively small because most of it is ephemeral in nature. Um, So you'll be storing a small amount of stuff that's relevant to the current set of conversations. And then perhaps a different set of people will archive the stuff that you know, you put onto your blob months and months ago, uh, because that's far less relevant than what you're looking at now. And so the storage limits that, you know, Dan mentioned are going to fluctuate between one and 16 megs, depending on what it is that people are using the network for and then how much storage they really need, should theoretically be enough to, in a decentralized, ownerless way, um, store the vast majority of the conversation. And for everything else, people can index themselves. Do I understand correctly by that, that my storage, if I have a particular name to which some amount is allocated, I can overwrite? So it's not yes, you can. It's overwritable. Okay. Correct. It is, it is not immutable. It is overwritable. It's, it's immutable in the sense that you, as the holder of the private key, are the only person that can write sure. to it. But uh, it's not like, say, uh, you know, an Rweave or an IPFS, which is trying to be like completely immutable and store everything always forever. How do incentives work in this network? Why would I run a node and buy some hard drives and serve data, perhaps? Well, I mean, I think the simplest answer is 
you want to participate in the wider network. Uh, the only way to participate in the wider network is to either run a node or have somebody else run a node for you. The storage requirements, when you multiply it out across the entire network, are not that high. So the incentives are kind of the same as the incentives to run your own Bitcoin node, say. You aren't incentivized directly, but if you want to participate in a network that is producing you value, the most resilient way to do that is to run a node yourself. But, uh, you know, I'm also the type of uh, geek that, that does run his own Bitcoin nodes and, and sort of things like that. So maybe, you know, my, my thoughts on this aren't as applicable to the wider public. Dan, do you have any thoughts on the incentive model? I think that there's always this question of like, do we, do we need to sort of uh, create this new token and use that token to bootstrap the network in some way? I think that these are all valid arguments and sort of uh, experiments that are, that are being um, uh, run in this space. One way to look at the way that we've um, kind of gone about this is that it's kind of minimalistic uh, Unix philosophy that's similar to the way that Handshake has gone about it. And, and it's very much a complementary project to Handshake. I think that this experiment uh, being footnote may, may inspire um, other capped size decentralized networks to, to um, experiment with adding token models on top of things like this. But, but right now, as far as what we have with this testnet and what we hope to build into production, it's, I, would, I would think of the incentives as very closely tied to utility and the growth of the handshake ecosystem. So if you have one of these names and you're running a node, then uh, you're, you're really increasing the value of all the other handshake names. And that will sort of like in a pretty direct way, increase, like if there's a lot of usage on the network, it's sort of like driving up the value of the names, driving up the usage of the names, that's basically going to continue to uh, put forward demand on the security bounty effectively that the proof of work miner is securing the handshake network. Like people are gonna value that more highly as well. Makes sense, makes sense. All right, one final cross-examination question then I'll yield the floor to Tango. How does consistency work? Uh, what if I publish an update, sign it with my private key, and send two different updates to two different halves of the network? The answer is uh, you've hurt nobody but yourself. Um, the network will be in an inconsistent state until you broadcast a new update. You know, unlike a, a blockchain, say, right, which which requires this sort of strong consistency guarantee, Footnote doesn't. So as long as you're not able to hurt anybody else's data or corrupt anybody else's data, if you did that. You might just have two different sets of indexers with two different sets of data. And um, as long as both of those updates were valid, uh, the network will be split brain for a bit until you post something else. I don't really see why somebody would want to do that unless, say, they posted something bad that they want to uh, either make very difficult to discover again or, or somehow, I don't know, claim that they didn't, even though you know there would have to be a signature attached to it. Yeah, the network would just become split brained. And I don't really think it's that big of a deal. I mean, I'm happy to be wrong, but uh, you know, one of the goals of this network is that it is this sort of eventually consistent thing that doesn't require a proof of work and doesn't privilege any node over any other node. And so it is possible for you know, people to have old stuff um, and also create two different sort of histories if they wanted to, but uh, they can't bring down the overall network by doing so. Matt, would now be a good time to uh, touch maybe even on some of the ongoing research that's being done um, around yeah, sure. fraud proofs and performance benefits of that? Yeah, so the current version of the protocol we have is uh, it's all based around this concept of a blob, and the blob is broken into partitions called sectors. And the sectors are Merkleized, and then you commit to the Merkle root. And that's sort of how we determine um, the, the provenance of of an update and make sure that only the owner of the blob is allowed to update it. It's based off of that Merkle root. Now, this allows you to do things like make random access updates to your blob. The problem with that though, is that, uh, you know, like you mentioned, there's sort of not really uh, possible to create a split brain network because there's no concept of, you know, which blob is canonical, um, except for a timestamp that the user chooses. So when I sign an update, I apply a timestamp to that blob that says I updated it at this time. I now can't put anything before that timestamp, but I can create two updates at that timestamp. Now, the research that we're exploring changes the model from one where I can perform random access updates to a blob to one where the blob becomes an append-only log, a little bit similar to secure scuttlebutt. So now the, the overriding of the blob mechanic is, you know, when I've 
my append-only log has reached the maximum size of the blob, I zero it out through my next update. And what the append-only log lets you do um, is it does create this ordered history of blob updates. And so what'll happen in the case of somebody broadcasting an update that uh, would cause the network to become split-brained, nodes have the ability to provide each other with fraud proofs that basically say somebody has broadcast two different updates from the same root. So if you imagine you know, a linear history, it forks, you can provide a proof of the fork. And when the nodes do that, they basically ban that particular name from participating in the network until it updates its public key on Handshake. And so um, it, it makes the network a lot more self-healing in that way. Um, there's gonna be a period of time where the fraud proof gets broadcast and some nodes may be offline and then come back online. However, over enough time, a split brain network will um, heal itself by banning the offending node. Because again, um, for somebody to create multiple updates of that kind, they have to be very deliberate about it. You know, they'd have to basically write code to do that. Um, and they'd have to be doing it on purpose. Um, so banning uh, a misbehaving node in that way is a valid response to somebody trying to make the network equivocate. What sorts of malicious attacks do you imagine would be launched on a second layer network such as Footnote to compel this to happen? Uh, you're referring to the split brain attack um, yeah. or just in general? In general, why would somebody want to, you know, send two conflicting pieces of information at the same time on Footnote's network? The only reason I could think of is if they wanted to obscure what the canonical content of a blob they control is. So, you know, maybe they write something objectionable and they now spend, you know, the effort to broadcast five different updates at the same timestamp or something like that. And as a result, try to mask the fact that they posted something bad previously. It wouldn't really work very well if, if someone did that because, you know, the last updated blob, you know, can, you can still figure out like what it is that they posted in the past if they did that. Um, or maybe they're trying to exploit some bug or problem in the footnote node itself that's triggered by this type of equivocation. To be clear about like what happens in the case of equivocation, let's say I broadcast an update at time n and I get a conflicting update at time n. Basically, the one that I receive first becomes canonical for my particular node. So that causes a problem for, say, indexing services that, you know, read the state of a node, but it doesn't cause problems like on the network itself. The network itself still functions. Those updates can still be gossiped and some nodes, you know, will get the different updates, you know, at that timestamp first. So there won't be a consistent network state, but it won't cause problems to any names except that one. So apart from, you know, trying to prevent indexers from indexing, you know, data in a blob, I, I can't think of much more or many more reasons rather why somebody would would want to do that. But that's one of the reasons why we're running the test net is to figure it's, that out. It's, it's kind of an interesting question. Like we, we spent a bit of time going over different ways that it could pop up. But I think one thing to highlight about what Matt's saying is that it's uh, not something that we really expect to happen. We don't see people having much of an incentive to. Like one way to break this down might be um, if you review sort of like the way that the most recent Twitter hack went, there was this notion that like Twitter's admin console got hacked and a whole bunch of very high profile Twitter personalities were making tweets uh, that tweeted out this, this uh, Bitcoin scam, right? And, and people started to ask questions like, you know, well, wouldn't it be better if someone like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos could not just have everything custodied on Twitter, but actually be able to sign one of their messages and prove that it came from like key material that they controlled. So that that would be something that um, is sort of part of the design uh, in terms of like using Handshake or, or something like Footnote for that sort of use case. You could sort of do a bunch of uh, uh, broadcasts or interactions and, and prove that it was the key holder that, that actually um, sent this message. Will there be instances where somebody wants to publish like two conflicting things that that they um, uh, sign and then they they maybe like revoke one for some sort of like, you know, they made the right prediction kind of reason. Like maybe if this was used for prediction markets, like that might be interesting to explore. But I, I think both Matt and myself at, at this stage, at least, um, consider that a bit of an edge case. Like I, I, we, don't, we don't see a lot of people doing it. 
more likely it'll come out of maybe, as Matt said, some sort of DOS attack or a bug or, or like kind of a unintentional misuse of the software somehow. Mm-hmm. Can you describe how the gossip network works in particular in connection with a few times you've mentioned eventual consistency, which to me implies there's some kind of ongoing gossip process and even resolution algorithm by which nodes pick you know, what to store for a particular blob in case they receive multiple messages. Is that right? Yes. And or how does it work? So the gossip process mimics Bitcoins in many ways. So you connect to the network. There's no DHT. Uh, you're going to discover some seed nodes either from DNS, local config, or on your local network. And then those nodes will in turn periodically give you the IP addresses of more nodes. And so you're going to connect and fill up a list of outgoing nodes up to some pre-configured limit, ditto for incoming nodes. So, you know, we followed the same node count and uh, a very, very similar kind of peer discovery algorithm uh, to Bitcoin Core. So once you've discovered um, a bunch of nodes, um, here's the process for an update. So there's two different ways that uh, updates happen. You're either a node that's coming online for the first time in a while, or just coming online and needs to resynchronize its data. Uh, and then there's, I receive an update from the wider network. So I'm going to start with receiving an update from the wider network, and then I can describe the kind of initial sync protocol as well. So the way um, an update gets uh, gossiped around the networks is as follows. The private key holder will sign off on an update message. Um, the update message contains the following things. It contains the Merkle root of the user's blob, uh, it contains the timestamp which the user chooses. That basically just uniquely identifies this particular version of the blob. It could just be an incrementer for you know, all the network cares. And then it contains the user's signature. And that update message then is sent to a random subset of those nodes, which are then in turn supposed to gossip that update to another random subset of nodes after those nodes have in turn synchronized the data from my local blob. And so... Let's uh, consider one hop out. So we're talking about my node now synchronizing with its direct peers now. So I'm going to send my update to say 15 peers. Those 15 peers will look at the timestamp of the blob that they have locally. If the timestamp is higher, they will begin a synchronization process. That synchronization process basically has each one of those nodes download from mine an individual sector. And with that sector response comes a Merkle proof. And that Merkle proof is used to verify that the sector data is valid. They'll write that sector data to the blob and then um, verify the Merkle root. Um, if the Merkle root looks good, then they will in turn broadcast those update messages to the rest of the network as well. Um, that's kind of a high level overview. Um, the actual message formats and the, and the messages exchanged to perform synchronization are a little bit different because uh, you know, there's a diffing process. So, you know, my node will, add, or if my node is syncing with your node, then I'm going to ask your node for the sectors that changed by providing it with a sort of list of hashes of uh, all the sectors in the blob. But that's sort of an optimization. The general idea is still the same. I synchronize and then I gossip that update to all of my peers once I'm done. And then those peers will in turn perform the same process to download sectors from my node. Now, when a node comes online for the first time, uh, it needs to perform this process, but without an update message. So what they're going to do is just talk to a certain subset of the nodes that they're connected to to figure out which update is canonical. And so when I say eventually consistent, what I mean is, you know, you may have, say, a node that's been offline for a long time that comes back online and now has a perfectly valid but old timestamp. And similarly, there is a lag time the same way there is in, say, Bitcoin where a new update hasn't yet reached n hops out uh, from the originator. And those nodes will still be broadcasting, if asked, perfectly valid but old blob timestamps. The last thing is, how do we sync initially? So, you know, on networks like, say, Bitcoin, you know, you need to figure out what, say, like the tip of the chain is. Uh, luckily, in our case, we can just query Handshake for that. So when a node starts up, it looks at all of the Handshake name records and figures out which ones contain public keys. And those are the names that it needs to query the network for. So that's the, the gossip network in a nutshell and the synchronization process. But just so everyone's clear, 
the gossip network on footnote is residing on a layer that's extending on top of the handshake blockchain, but is not itself on a blockchain, right? Yes, that is correct. So uh, what handshake is used for is, is as the root of identity. So you own a handshake name, you update that handshake name's TXT records to contain a public key. That public key is then used to authorize changes to a given footnote blob. And that blob exists on a completely separate network from handshakes. Although theoretically speaking, if we wanted to, uh, we could piggyback off of things like you know the handshake peer discovery protocol. Um, however, none of that's been implemented yet. And there are some advantages to having a distinct gossip network uh, from Handshake. But uh, yeah, it is possible for us to make the integration closer if we wanted to. It seems like they would be addressing two different things, right? If Yeah, yeah, the peer discovery network in Handshake would be for discovering miners and the transactions. Yeah, miners and, and exactly, yeah. Your blockchain data, right? You connect to other nodes on a blockchain network to download bits and pieces of the blockchain. The footnote network is to download bits and pieces of the footnote network, uh, footnote blobs specifically. Um, however, like you know, if every footnote node also needs to connect to a corresponding handshake node to discover those keys, then it might make sense to find a way to wrap them up into one if uh, you know people demanded it. But right now, there's been no such demand. If we zoom uh, out a bit and look at what sorts of content you'd expect to be circulating across this network, what kinds of applications do you expect it would be used for? I, I know we touched on social networking, but I imagine that this gossip network is similar to how BitTorrent is constructed, where content is being seeded and, and distributed and downloaded and uploaded and stored. Yeah, a little bit. I'd, I'd say the parts of Footnote that are closest to BitTorrent is the actual, you know, synchronization protocol in the sense that I'm downloading data from multiple peers and I can authenticate that data using a Merkle tree. Uh, that's probably the part that's closest to BitTorrent. BitTorrent itself does peer discovery through DHT, which is a little bit different from how Footnote works. But I think the question was like, what are the other types of content that this could be used for? Right? I just want to make sure that I get the, the question right. What sorts of content do you imagine would be inside of the blobs that are passed around or updated? Yeah. So, I mean, right now it's primarily social metadata. So we have a a message format. You know, you can pack data into a blob to represent social networking information and metadata. And uh, we built a, a tool called Nomad on top of that, that lets you create posts and follow people graphically. And under the hood, that uses footnote as the backend. But as for like what else it could be used for, I mean, this is an experimental protocol. So the answer is we just don't know. Part of the reason why we're doing the testnet is, you know, we have a thesis for how people might want to use it. But uh, once we kind of expose it to the market, people are going to use it however they see fit, or they might not use it at all. But in either case, you know, we want to explore what happens when you have access to, you know, something that we think is pretty novel which is a decentralized data storage platform with baked-in decentralized self-sovereign identity. A lot of attempts at decentralized social networking don't have the self-sovereign identity. And a lot of attempts at decentralized storage have problems like, you know, pinning and, you know, they need to build in a token in order to get people to store data. This is novel in the sense that it's extremely simple and has that identity layer on top. Um, So you can build applications like social networking on top of it very easily. And um, I think it's a worthy experiment. I can jump in here and also like elaborate a little bit more on some of the things that it could be used for. When you're looking at something like Footnote and like your sort of ticket to entry to the network is the the name that you control, this sort of unique human-readable handshake name, the types of applications that we think are pretty interesting to explore are Things like anonymous image boards or decentralized Reddit or like a decentralized Twitter where you have a name and you have access to this network, but the the sort of differentiator here and, and kind of why we think it's kind of an interesting experiment in Web3 is the notion that you can now have versions of these applications that really don't require a central administrating company to provision the servers and and basically take custody of, of the data. It's, it's sort of credibly 
not owned by anybody. Um, you could decide individually, and maybe that's kind of another topic you, you could undo that after regarding how banning might work and and how like certain illicit content might be um, cordoned off or, or sort of like certain nodes run in certain jurisdictions can can hold certain kinds of content that may not be as legal in other jurisdictions. I think that to call back to the exploration of like kind of this intersection of how footnote and torrents could um what's similar between the protocols um and, and like like how that stuff could could play out one example i think that is um kind of interesting to me is is the idea that torrent trackers and what websites that host torrent databases have still needed to have like a company with centralized dns that uh, you know dumps all of this stuff into a database. You have uh, open source projects like Gazelle that um, manage a bunch of infrastructure for the teams or the individual developers that want to provide these these services. You could imagine something like Footnote opening up the ability to discover a lot of different, like you could you could have this be like the censorship resistant or the open uh, bootstrapping network for a large database of magnet links, as an example. Yeah, how do you imagine the market mindshare migration to happen? So right now, when you think of social networking, you think of one of the big conglomerates, Twitter or Facebook being an example. And in order to make a meaningful dent in the social networking space, you essentially would have to onboard a million users for years. And so how do you imagine that bootstrapping process to work? Do you imagine it would, you know, become an alternative to Twitter or Facebook? Or, you know, do you imagine this to be like a slow bleed as more and more people realize they need a decentralized network in order to do social networking? Can you explain that? Yeah, I think there's two ways to think about this. There's like the super organic way that is very much like uh, there's not a lot of marketing. There's a very grassroots community. I think that Handshake has a lot of ideological and community uh, resonance with this method as well. And so I'm thinking about uh, projects like Mastodon. I think uh, some of the inspiration for this protocol was also learning from what we saw was compelling about projects like Secure Scuttlebutt. And so there's this uh, question of like how far could Secure Scuttlebutt have gone if there were uh, engineering resources around to really make that protocol solid and also make the user interfaces easy to use. I remember really enjoying being on early versions of Patchwork and Patch Bay. So there's this like, can you get that like organic story uh, to play out what community features are needed? And, and also like, like I, I think one of the things that would be needed as sort of a booster rocket to get past um, some of the plateaus of growing organically would be new use cases new things that people uh, previously didn't think were possible that have been sort of attempted in like roundabout ways. I'm I'm thinking specifically of like how Mastodon has sort of a federated approach that has been very um, compelling to a lot of decentralization enthusiasts. Uh, Even even, uh, Twitter executives have been paying a lot of attention to it. So that there's this like, like how far can you get with that? And then there's also uh, maybe Handshake could bring something really interesting or that's sort of my belief here where by owning your handshake name and and using footnote, you have an even higher level of trust that is not mutually exclusive from operating a Mastodon Fed. And that would, I think, roughly be equivalent to providing a bunch of subdomains using handshake, like sub sub-level names uh, that have access to, to the same services. So as far as like what the shape of these new products might might look like, they might start out to be like a lot of people on board with sub-level names, uh, which which we're actively working on. And and as that happens, they have an easy time posting and they have an easy time with the familiar user experience uh, threshold, but they can um, sort of escape hatch out into a full handshake thing if they want to and not have to trust whoever is um, providing them the top level. So that's sort of like one way to look at it, I think, like ways that that shape can can like play out or that, that trajectory for, for the organic story. And then what that might hook into is um, you could imagine challenger social media companies or businesses start to look at this model. I think that there were there were a lot of times in like late 2017 or like mid early 2018 when when a lot of different companies were, were looking at blockchain-based solutions for identity as well. And and uh, I think that um 
handshake sort of a fresh take on that. So you you could imagine people trying to do things like decentralized identity and decentralized login uh, with Footnote. I think those two ways of approaching the adoption trajectory can have overlap where you have like a grassroots community that's sort of growing, but also a company or or, or like a small existing uh, effort um, like Mastodon could take a closer look at Handshake and then have a Fed that uh, plays around with these concepts and, and you could sort of see if there's interop potential and utility from there. So this is a bit of a technical plumbing question, but you've talked a lot about the use case of social networks. So I think it's worth asking, dive as deep in or stay as shallow as you'd like. From my understanding, which is not direct, but from my understanding, one thing that is absolutely essential in social networks is ensuring that the data users want to see, be it posts or photos, the data that you speak of that's pretty ephemeral and usually updated frequently, gets to them quickly. So usually in traditional uh, infrastructure, this is done by edge caching, like an edge caching service such as Cloudflare, maybe that's the most well-known example, will have a bunch of servers located all around the world, which cache things. That's basically all they do, but they are close to people so that when you go type facebook.com and press center, a bunch of the images that you're seeing are probably going to be fetched from a local cache server instead of fetched from somewhere halfway across the world, even if the person who posted the image is halfway across the world. Given that I suspect like edge devices like phones or tablets or something aren't going to be able to run a node, have you thought of how you might provide something similar, preferably with, you know, without just introducing an intermediary, or at least not one you have to trust? So there's sort of two different types of content that we're talking about here. There's like the kind of attachments to the posts themselves, which are generally speaking stored off protocol given the, the size constraints. And then there's the contents of you know the, the posts themselves that are generally stored on Footnote. So since the, the content that's not stored on Footnote is like the answer is pretty boring. Like you can put your images on Imgur if you want, or you can make magnet links and use WebTorrent or something like that. Like the answer is you use whatever storage layer you want for those. I'll, I'll stick to the more interesting one, which is how does Footnote itself handle it? And so the answer to that is the speed at which a user is going to be able to get content in the first place is dependent on how quickly the a particular piece of content traverses the gossip network. And so that could be anywhere from immediate, depending on how many hops away they are from the given node that's originating the content, or potentially several minutes uh, if it's multiple hops away. So once the data exists on a node, it's extremely fast to query that data, but now we need a way to get it. So is it possible for a tablet or a phone to run a node? I think it is theoretically possible. It's just that node will not be online very much and so won't be benefiting from downloading smaller amounts of data from the larger network. It would be coming online when you open the app and then being forced to download a lot more all at once. But so to your question about intermediaries, tablets and phones that aren't able to run their own nodes and things like that would want to talk to an indexer. But the advantage of footnote over, say, you know, a Mastodon or, or something like that is that the indexer, all indexers are talking to the same canonical repository of data. So I may want to use Kyokin's indexer because it's convenient and already there. But if I run my own indexer, and our current indexer service, from what I understand, is open source, I can get the exact same data in the way that I want it. And that can be run at my house. It can be run on AWS. It can be run through a hosting service. It sort of doesn't matter. The data still ends up being exactly the same. And so that's how we get around the, you know, the system requirements to run a node being difficult for phones and tablets to run. You'll want to talk to an indexer. But frankly, you're, you'll be running an indexer anyway to do something meaningful with the protocol because you still need to parse the blobs from the raw bytes into something graphical for a user to interact with. Uh, you'll want to add search and things like that on top of it. Footnote is designed to be a relatively thin storage-only layer. So you can build whatever you want on top of it. Kind of the same way things like HTTP are. HTTP operates at this level where it's just transferring you bytes over a network, things like edge caches were created to solve the problems that weren't solved by things lower in the protocol stack. And we would imagine that if adoption were to occur for Footnote, then uh, we or other people would build things to solve the problems that arise um, as a result of Footnote being low in the protocol stack. 
Yeah, you mentioned Secure Scuttlebutt and its history and it being a motivation for footnote, but maybe we could get some value off of understanding its history, why it failed, and why footnote is different, or what sorts of features that footnote offers that Secure Scuttlebutt didn't, or yeah, what other factors uh, played into Secure Scuttlebutt not exactly working out as planned. Sure. And, and to be clear, like, at least for me personally, I don't think SSB has, has failed. I don't, I don't think any, um, I don't think any decentralized social networking application has failed because none of them have succeeded, you know, in beating the centralized incumbents yet. Does that make sense? It's like the difference failing implies that it's just going to go away. Like in this case, we're all still trying to have different goals as well. Maybe that's the more interesting idea to touch on. The question of why no decentralized social networking solution has defeated its incumbents so far and like massively succeeded. Yeah, well, it's it's just a really, really difficult problem. Um, I can articulate the things that make it really hard and then I can articulate the things that I think, you know, uh, Footnote does well and potentially contrast that with other uh, protocols and, and projects if you think that would be helpful. Yeah, and and namely why they haven't been able to usurp something like a you know Twitter, a centrally served website. Yeah, sure. So the one of the biggest things that that is incredibly difficult to solve in any decentralized network is identity. So you know, I own at M Slipper on Twitter. That is the only at M Slipper on Twitter. And as Twitter grows, um, the relative value of that name increases because it means that, you know, I can now tweet out to my fans, they can tweet out to me, more people are on the network. And, you know, it creates this tremendous network effect that makes it hard to take down any social network. It's hard for us to beat Facebook and Twitter because all my friends are on them and uh, joining a new social network sucks because my friends aren't on them. So... You couple that with the fact that things like Mastodon and to some degree SSB couple the network adoption problem, like my friends aren't on it problem, with the fact that your identity is either federated or non-existent. Um, and it means that it becomes much more difficult to take ownership over your own content and for other people to find and discover you. So on Twitter, you can just Google my name and you'll find my handle. And that's the only one on Secure Scuttlebutt, they can find other people's nicknames for me. And then on Mastodon, they have to also know the Fed to which I am posting my content. And so those two problems are really difficult to surmount for decentralized protocols because, you know, it's sort of like, uh, are you familiar with, uh, I think it's called Zuko's Triangle. I can't remember the exact thing, but it's like for any identifier, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So do you want me to articulate what it is for the listeners or do you want me to yes, just sort of we, move on? Yes, we want okay, the cool. podcast to be a singleton and so all context should Okay, be. cool. So uh, Zuko's triangle, from what I remember, it's this idea that for a given secure identifier, it can either be human-readable, secure, or decentralized. And you can only pick two. Did I get that right? There, there, okay, there cool. were three. Yeah, yeah, but you can only pick two of them. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it can either be human-readable, secure, or decentralized for what any identifier. And so a lot of these, um, each social decentralized social network attempt has tried to, you know, pick different aspects of, you know, Zuko's triangle. The thing that I think is interesting about Handshake is that it's one of the first projects that I think kind of cleanly solves all three. It's a blockchain, so it's decentralized. Um, You have to hold a key pair. So ownership over name is secure, but they're also human readable because that's the whole point of Handshake. And so by marrying Handshake with a data storage layer, it becomes possible to at least like build a network that has both self-sovereign naming, but also self-sovereign data. And if you make that data social data, you now have a social network uh, that's decentralized with a central store of identity. You really want that singleton in a social network. There aren't 10 Twitters for me to go to. There's only one, and there's only one place with my tweets and my name. That's the experience you want to mimic. And that's really hard to do with uh, like federated or in the case of um, SSB. SSB isn't federated, but it's uh, it's a gossip network and it's a gossip network with like no centralized identity. What so, I find really, really interesting yeah. about the, the way that they were kind of meandering through this 
network effects discussion is, is that um, it, it's worth highlighting how, like, yes, these network effects have been historically very hard for decentralized networks to, to compete with. But um, you, you could have said the same thing about something like Bitcoin in 2013. Like, like, how will you get people to care about it? So I feel like with Handshake and things like it, like we're still very early and, and maybe maybe the 2020s, given everything that's happening in the world uh, around misinformation and, you know, just like subjective uh, moderation uh, incentives around that, um, this could be the decade to see that play out. And, and um, uh, one thing that I find really compelling about the about the design considerations of handshake is that it's really trying to be the thinnest possible base layer for the centralized web with the, just these names secured by proof of work there's really nothing else fancy going on footnote layers on top of that but but it's important to keep in mind that like you know this could be thought of as a novel identity solution but it's it's also very much compatible with existing identity solutions and hybrids like the federated approach. And so, so if you're familiar with Handshake's distribution, like uh, Chango, feel free to prompt or, or like fill in later if uh, that would be useful for listeners. But, but you could imagine something happening in this trajectory where, where some of our critical path points are that Twitter, who's been actually quite bullish on federation and, and promoting that as, you know, part of their strategy for, evolve in the platform um, in response to some of their criticisms. Um, they could claim the Twitter um, TLD on Handshake and then, and then administer identity through a federated approach uh, in a way that's interoperable with Footnote. So, so it'd be, it would be kind of interesting to, to see like some of the indexer solutions that like Matt is describing and how that evolves where maybe as part of some of the canonical indexers that are actually um, on Cloudflare and like, you know, run by a bunch of different companies, you could, you could search for users and, and then like, you could both be an identity on Handshake and I, I could buy like Dan on Handshake, but I, I could also be like SDTSUI on Twitter. Uh, and that would be like a subdomain where it's like SDTSUI.Twitter and both of those things could talk to each other. So there's this, there's a sense of like the incumbent companies are already thinking about this. So it's really not the case that we're starting from zero. I think there's a lot of momentum around this movement and around these, these ideas. And, and the thesis is that uh, maybe um, things like handshake and footnote could be the missing piece to get the friction low enough for the adoption to happen. I think uh, a lot of theorists and, and people that have thought a lot about network effects, have, like, I'm thinking specifically about stuff that Mark and Jason has said and stuff that um, partners from Union Square Ventures have said, there's, there's something about how, like, when network effects are spinning up, you know, if, if they're kind of on the uptrend, they're extremely hard to attack. But once they sort of hit that second bump in the S-curve, um, they also unravel very quickly. And so there's this sense of, like, yeah, it doesn't look like the centralized networks can, can really hold a candle to the centralized ones right now. But, you know, a few bricks in the dam are all that need to be loosened in order for a really big change to occur. Um, and I think networks like Mastodon are like really well positioned to benefit from that upside if it if it ever does happen. The Jenga Tower of centralized web services. Yeah, exactly. I predict what the last little block will be. But and you kind of touched on the idea of self sovereign identity, but I think for our listeners, it's still a bit abstract and in the realm of quote buzzword. So. I want to get into more visceral territory. You know, how is it that this thing that you're introducing to the world is a potential solution towards self-sovereign identity? What does that even mean? You know, to have sure. your identity in a decentralized way in a digital world. So right now, um, I say something Twitter doesn't like. Uh, they disable my handle. Now, nobody can find any content that I've created. Similarly, let's say I'm running a website and uh, that website gets taken down by the authorities. They don't usually go after the server serving that website. They disable the domain name. So the point that I'm trying to make is that the name that you're using to identify a bunch of content or identify yourself um, is critically important uh, for you to be able to get your message out there. Because if you don't have control over it or someone takes that control away from you, then it becomes trivially easy to censor you by making it impossible for people to discover what it is what you're trying to say that you're trying to say and so self-sovereign identity in this world is an identity that only you control cryptographically 
that nobody can take away from you without your permission. And that's something that hasn't really existed yet up until sort of the creation of blockchains that allow you to store naming data. So ENS, Handshake, uh, to some degree Namecoin. Right? Those are self-sovereign identities because nobody can take those identities away from you without your key pair. And as a result, things that are tied to those self-sovereign identities are much, much harder to censor. Think of it kind of like, you know, I don't need to blow up your storefront, you know, if I don't like your store, if I can just rip down all the billboards, take down the sign and build a wall in front of your shop. No one's going to be able to shop there anymore, even though the shop still exists. And that is the the thing that self-sovereign identity is trying to prevent. Right. And maybe not just in censorship, but in pretending to be someone you're not as well. For example, I run a Telegram channel and then uh, somebody wants to mimic the admin of the official channel and then they try and launch a phishing scam or something like that. And if you had your self-sovereign identity where uh, your name is tied to your key pair and you and only you could sign it to prove that it was you who sent it, something like that couldn't happen. I think that's yeah, it's much harder aspect, right? One thing, one thing that's worth noting though is that it's always possible to create a lookalike of a name, you know. So I could have like Shango, but where the J is like has like a, I don't know an umlaut above it or something like that. But I could never duplicate your keys. And uh, self-sovereign identity, if it's tied to a key pair, makes the use of a key pair to validate content much easier. Right, and so going back to the beginning of this episode where we talked about a lot of high-profile Twitter handles tweeting out a phishing scam, essentially, because Twitter got hacked. Uh, Something like that couldn't happen with Handshake and Footnote, right? It would be much, much harder. And the reason why it would be much harder is that rather than compromising, you know, the admin panel of Twitter, they would have to compromise the key pairs of every single targeted Footnote user. Uh, And that's, and that's much harder. Um, what decentralization kind of does is it, you know, it makes it much harder. It makes attacks much harder by increasing the surface area you have to attack for anything to be, for any attack to be meaningful. To destroy, say, Bitcoin or Footnote, I'm going to have to destroy a large proportion of the nodes in existence. And that's much harder than calling up Amazon and saying, hello, please take down this server. Um, ditto for attacks on Twitter, right? I know I can't just go into the admin panel and post tweets on behalf of all these people. I have to compromise each person individually or the way that they're custodying their keys individually. And that's uh, much, much harder for people to pull off. That question has, I think, an interesting uh, property or, or points at something that I hadn't previously thought of before. We usually think of crypto adoption in the context of these, uh, like how easy it is to self-custody, how easy it is to control your own keys. And so we're like, the average user might not want to do this. That's kind of a barrier, right? But on the flip side, when you when you look at these very high value accounts, I was reading an article the other day about how a, a security researcher was sort of penetration testing at random different accounts for fun. And he guessed Donald Trump's Twitter account's password. It was something like MAGA 2020 with an exclamation mark or something. And then he was able to log in and take screenshots of it and look at his DMs. And like, he was kind of a white hatter, so he didn't really do anything with it. But there's this kind of interesting, like, if you are someone with a very, very high value account that can influence world events, you're probably going to go to the trouble in the same way that people think about 2FA right now, where you don't do it right away when you log in. But when you actually have like a lot of money on your centralized exchange login or a lot of followers, if you're a public figure, like just a a very basic like online hygiene thing to do might be to then connect your account to a public private key pair that you control. And maybe you hand that off to your PR person or your press assistant or something like that. So it's, it's kind of interesting to see how like maybe the, the sort of very far end of the barbell in terms of import and like scale would be where you would find a lot of utility in solutions like Handshake and Footnote relative to, uh, you know, starting with people that are just signing up and trying to get to like web scale that way. Yeah, that is interesting. One really common question that I get all the time when asked about Handshake is that how is it not that it's predecessors who are approaching this same problem in a different way 
uh, not sufficient like Handshake is. Uh, you mean like why did, uh, say, Namecoin and not succeed the same way we think Handshake will succeed? Yeah, and, and projects like ENS, for example, why don't they have the same properties as Handshake? To the layman, they look exactly the same without you know, yeah. diving any deeper. So it would be good to talk about that. I think the really um, cool thing, Handshake does two things like really, really well. It's designed to be relatively minimal in the sense of the layer of protocol stack that it occupies. It just does naming. Um, and it also includes as part of its just does naming functionality, DNS um, out of the box. So you can, it's designed out of the box to be used for specifically DNS naming. And the other thing that Handshake does really well is its distribution. Um, so the airdrop plus the claims plus the uh, the auction, the, the victory auction functionality together mean that there's a large number of people that already have Handshake tokens that are going to be able to participate on the network immediately and um, are going to be able to, you know, once they've acquired their names, actually do meaningful things with them by hooking them up to their like various websites and, and other services. Um, and I think that's fairly unique. A lot of other attempts at naming have not had quite the same distribution, but uh, distribution plus functionality. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I'm bullish on Handshake. But uh, I'm sure Dan also has uh, some thoughts here too. I can add a few minor things, but I mean, a, a good nutshell summary would be to go like versus ENS. Uh, I, I think ENS is a great project, by the way, but but Handshake's uh, a differentiator there is that it's it's really like its own purpose-built chain with its own set of incentives. And that I think can have some unique beneficial effects that um, end up making it even a, like sort of a good interoperability layer between multiple decentralized web projects. Compared to something like Namecoin, I think that Handshake has really evolved on the distribution model, both in terms of like the coin table, you know, who has a large stake in the Handshake network being successful, Handshake was able to get investment from a, a lot of a very high reputation people in the tech industry and the crypto industry. The distribution, not just of the coins, but of the names themselves, the top 100K Alexa domains uh, are able to provide a DNSSEC proof trustlessly and claim their name. And um, you know, companies like Brave have claimed their name. The ENS folks have also claimed their name and that sort of comes with uh, coins as well. So there's like an economic incentive, but also there's a sense of like, the ENS people or the ENS team has paid enough attention to Handshake to claim the .eth name. And so there's this potential for um, at least like the incentive alignment of more interoperability and like more growth just, just from having everyone with the right incentives set up from the very beginning. And I don't think that um, many projects have uh, done that with quite the degree of reach and uh, as Handshake. Yeah. So we did talk a, a lot about Footnote uh, being used in the social networking application. Just to wrap up and summarize this episode, let's talk about what more applications Footnote could be expanded to beyond just social networking, because a lot of our listeners may be thinking, well, it's going to be very difficult to try and take on the Twitter behemoth, you know, but as I understand it, Footnote is much more useful than just like a protocol for social networking. So there's an entire world of applications that can be built and maybe we could shed some light on that. I can throw a few balls in the air here and and Matt, I think we've we've had a bunch of discussions about this yeah. too. So feel free to jump in whenever maybe we can like tag team this one. One thing to I think that's worth thinking about is that uh outside of social this this could really kind of be thought of as like a very thin data layer, like an extension layer on top of all the names that you control. So if you look at Handshake's existing sort of narrative and thrust around domain names, I could see people, A, using this for like any instance where you want to publish data um, in sort of a high trust way, whether that be like high value data from something like a real world Oracle or something like... Um, like an exchange, take Kraken, for example, like claiming the dot Kraken name and then using that to publish their keys. And, and like they fully own the stack where in that they, they own the name and they've published like signed a message that, that sort of comes from the organization or the security team at Kraken. That's sort of different from kind of having to go through centralized DNS or having to go through some other platform where they're posting a gist or something. It's just sort of like 
there is no intermediary between that process. You can go straight to their node or something, right? And I think that that's kind of interesting to play around with. And I think the other thing that I would append to the to the domain area or the domain use case would be um, you could imagine that um, uh, you could start doing uh, subdomains or or like sub identities and kind of fraction fraction out ownership of, of of a TLD and then and then maybe maybe it's part of creating fractional ownership of these TLDs. You also have fractional ownership of these uh, of like this space. So I could have like a couple of hundred names that I kind of give out to people or like create a new brand around. And there's some scarcity there that is kind of interesting to play around with from a product perspective. Yeah, specifically, I imagine we could do some search engine indexing, like a decentralized Google on the uh, footnote network, like a Wikipedia mirror, all of these things could be applied. Yeah, like like your, your sort of robots.txt or like the sort of caching layer where you can store some metadata that really isn't controlled by uh, some metadata about your website. Uh, it'd be kind of interesting to play around with. Is there any benefit to a footnote as this sort of unique data storage uh, protocol? How are people able to plug in something like IPFS or SIA into Handshake and have these different decentralized data storage solutions also plug on top of Handshake? Well, I just think of it kind of like, you know, you have a raw repository of data and then you need something that lets people look it up and, you know, give it names and other bits of, of metadata. So, you know, in the case of, of Saya, at least, uh, Nomad is right now using Saya as the storage layer for things like images. I see no reason why the same thing could not also be done for IPFS. Um, IPFS does not natively provide any discoverability functionality. So theoretically, DDRP could be used to help discover your IPFS content um, that you're, you're hosting somewhere. Sorry, um, what's DDRP? Oh, I'm sorry. That was the old name of Footnote. <laughs> I'm so used to saying DDRP. Uh, footnote is is DDRP. It's just the old name. So to to repeat, then uh, you know you could use Footnote as um, a store of metadata or or a tool that's used to index or discover IPFS or SIA content. You mentioned to test that the technical status of the project. Anything interested parties should know? Any challenges up ahead or already in your front windshield, or so to speak? A lot of the repos that we're talking about can be found at the Kyokun GitHub, this sort of proof of concept application that was described by Matt that also uses um, Skynet is uh, called Nomad. And you can find the, the repo for that on our, on our GitHub, but also on um, nmd.co, which is sort of an example, sort of way to host this data in a centralized format where we're running a node in the background. So there is a small testnet and we're, we're running most of the nodes for that. Uh, product like Nomad is sort of like in front of that. Um, and displaying the posts that use the social message format that Matt described. But um, yeah, I think I think Matt, you, you could you could talk a little bit about some of the ongoing research and like different different sort of optimizations that you're you're considering. Pretty open-ended possibilities with like how things play out on adoption and also just like making the protocol more scalable. Yeah, totally. So as far as um, technical status goes, so we have a testnet up. It's currently running Nomad. You can download one of the binaries or compile your own from the FND uh, repo and join the network. There's also a suite of JavaScript tools that we use to power um, NMD itself that are up on MTM. As far as, as research goes, uh, we, we really want to see how the network performs when people are, are using it, and stressing it. So part of the research in the new year is going to be benchmarking, determining you know, what uh, hardware needs for a network under different um, load scenarios, and then separately, um, how to allow the network to support more difficult use cases like chat or microblogging. You know, one of the things about Twitter is that not only do you have a very, very large number of updates, but, you know, those updates are coming at a very fast rate. So there may be optimizations that we need to the protocol to do that. And part of that is the um, append-only log work that we talked about earlier in the episode. But you know it's it's available now. Like you can you can play with it. You can do meaningful things on it. And um, we really want to get feedback and, and learn from the public of how they're using it um, in order to make it better. And also, if people are interested in having other people contribute to the protocol as well. Yeah, it's interesting to see that you guys were there in the very early days, helping out with the 
most critical infrastructure on top of Ethereum and seeing that you guys are now early into handshake building some of the early critical infrastructure for that protocol. So thank you for coming on. Thank and you for having us. Cool. Thank yeah, you, listeners. Thanks. We'll see you out in the multiverse. See you then. <laughs>